0: carpet dryers and the low rumble of dehumidifiers hummed through the Lone Star College Kingwood campus. It was background noise, static, a constant reminder that in the wake of Hurricane Harvey, the West Fork of the San Jacinto River had sent 42 inches, three and a half feet, of sewage-laced water through the campus on Tuesday, August 29, 2017. Chain-link fences surrounded six of the campus's nine buildings. The remediation contractor, Blackman Mooring, at every possible opening flung wide, 12-inch yellow plastic ducts ran through doors and windows like tracheotomy tubes, sometimes two and three to an opening. The pipes sneaked across lawns and sidewalks and parking spaces and loading docks to great steel cages nine feet long and six and a half feet high, industrial dehumidifiers. Air hissed through boxy intake valves and rushed out to the waiting buildings, dry as the hot African wind that birthed Harvey. The dehumidifiers arrived on campus before faculty and staff did, long before any students. And they would remain through September and October, November and December, only silencing in January, five months after the flood.
1: We
2: could go on campus, but a lot of the buildings were uh, fenced off. Yeah. Things were blowing into the buildings, and we didn't see a lot of people in and out of the thing. So we're kind of sitting there going, time is ticking by, but we're not seeing anything happen.
3: That was Mika Mitchell, reference librarian at Lone Star College Kingwood Library.
0: And this is Patron Driven, crowdsourced library stories where the personal and the professional meet. I'm Bill Mickey.
3: And I'm Mark Dirks. We work for Choice, a publishing unit of the Association of College and Research Libraries, a division of the American Library Association.
0: This is Episode 3 of 5, Fluid. If you haven't listened to Parts 1 and 2, stop now, go back, listen to them. There's information in there you'll need to make sense of this episode. Part 1 Drowned Books While
3: the buildings were drying out, what were Mika, Allison, Anne, and Jennifer doing? A lot of scrambling, for starters. Imagine that the tasks that you've been doing for the past decade are suddenly gone, but your job isn't. You're still the circulation coordinator or the reference librarian, but you have no library the campus president has committed to making sure everyone who has a job and wants to hold on to it can keep it. What does that look like in practice? Let's talk about Anne and Allison first.
2: Our day-to-day was no longer day-to-day. I mean, circulation, uh, again, is mostly checking in and checking out and making IDs. Uh, That changed. We had to imagine what our library was going to be.
0: The first thing Anne did was to start making sense of the catalog. That's the online list of books the library owns. It was no small task. As you can imagine, the flood destroyed thousands of books. And as days turned into one week and then two, Anne and the circulation assistants began the process of preparing records for removal from the catalog. The plan was to get the catalog ready for Library Technical Services, LTS, to do a batch removal of all the destroyed books in December of 2017. In the Harvey Recovery Timeline Ian sent us, the the entry for September 12, 2017 provides a bit of information about how they prepared the catalog records for removal. And I quote, In order for our drowned items to be removed from the catalog efficiently, all associated holds and fines would have to be removed. I created a procedure for a project called Removing Associated Fines and Holds for LSC Kingwood Items." End quote. You can see that in some ways, Anne is a literalist. The entry continues. This procedure required waiving fines attached to items dating back to 1999. For example, one item such as an algebra book could have been checked out hundreds of times over the years with 56 patrons returning the book late without paying their fine and eight holds still on the item, end quote. If you remember back in episode one, the library held around 40,000 books. When the circulation department started this project, they were shooting to finish it by December 2017. But Anne's Harvey recovery timeline notes that they wouldn't finish the bulk of the project until January of 2018, and she would wrap up the special cases on February 1 of that year. That's five full months of work.
3: On Thursday, September 21st, 2017, Ann and Allison went to what I like to think of as the Lone Star College's library home base. That's, you guessed it, Library Technical Services. LTS is really the central hub that connects all of the Lone Star College campus libraries. It's located in University Park, the Lone Star College system's main administrative office. It's about 30 minutes from the Kingwood campus. LTS facilitates the interlibrary loan we talked about in episode one. They're also responsible for cataloging and administrating library technologies. All the books and magazines that the campus libraries purchase go through LTS before making their way out to the campuses. In ways, LTS is part Amazon warehouse and part library Uber brain.
0: At LTS, Ann and Allison started an account called Hurricane Kingwood. This account played an important role in separating books that survived the flood from those that didn't. They dubbed undamaged books Harvey survivors. Because the Kingwood Library was closed, students and faculty would return books they had checked out from Kingwood to other locations, like North Harris or Montgomery. When those libraries checked the books in, they would get tagged and sent to LTS for safekeeping. It's here that Anne did a clever thing. She got a blue library card and labeled it Hurricane Kingwood. She left it at LTS so the workers there could check out Kingwood books that arrived there. Here's why she did that. Imagine you're a circulation worker and a patron drops a book in the book return. You pull it out and notice the pages are torn or the books water damaged or otherwise brutalized beyond repair. That's when you would order a new copy or whatever it is that your library requires and you would remove it from the catalog. Basically, there isn't a scenario in the normal course of operations where you would remove checked out books. So then, why the library card? Because Anne needed to keep the books that were coming back to LTS from other Lone Star libraries separate from the books that needed to be removed from the catalog. Now, if you're holding the physical book, it's pretty easy to tell you don't need to remove it. But if you're working in just the online catalog, One book seems pretty much like any other book. You don't have any way to tell if it's a Harvey survivor or not. Unless it's checked out to the Hurricane Kingwood account, then you know the book is a Harvey survivor. See? Totally ingenious.
3: Part 2. Classes start. But our Kingwood crew, they weren't the only ones facing storm-wrought changes. The students were, too. They wanted to attend classes to find some normalcy. You can almost hear the astonishment in their Facebook responses to pictures of flooding from the time. One, Amy, replied to a picture of floodwaters covering half of the Lone Star College Kingwood sign, quote, "'This is heartbreaking to see. From the looks of this, I doubt we'll be able to start classes on the 5th. I'm starting to worry if we'll be able to start this semester at all, and if not, I get the money back I paid for the classes until next semester.'" End quote. Her concern is understandable, and it also highlights why it is so important for the campus to get up and running as soon as possible. Students were worried. They'd been promised an education, and they expected to get one, regardless of whether or not the campus had flooded. It's really understandable. Taylor shared this story on Facebook. Jared and I, students and we work in creative services, live out in Crosby on Lake Houston. Long story short, since we were seeing rising water levels in our backyard that we nor his family had ever seen at that house before, it's an older house been in his family for a few generations. We chose to take our most valuable possessions and head northeast to Porter where my parents live. With road closures and high water areas, we're sitting on an island at the moment, but we're safe and dry. Now, we're just waiting for a path to clear so we can head back to our house and assess any damage it may have.
0: Stories like this played out all over Houston. More than two million stories, one for every person living there at the time, and every single story unique. We left Ann and Allison at LTS with a new Hurricane Harvey account on September 21st. Classes started back up on September 25th. So, how did they do it? How did Kingwood start classes back up? What did it take for Jennifer and Mika?
3: For Jennifer, Harvey had an immediate and radical impact on her day-to-day. If you remember back in episode one, a big part of Jennifer's job was purchasing books, managing professional development funds, overseeing money, basically. She was the department's budget czar or something like that. Now, There was no collection, and worse, the Lone Star College instituted a spending freeze for the Kingwood campus. So, what did she do?
1: I'm an includer. That's just one of my things. So I wanted to make sure that everyone felt like, you know, everyone's still part of the group. We're still a core team, that we are still going to come together. It's all going to be fine, you know, because there were so many unknowns at that point. So it was just we need to coordinate a dinner, right? So everyone lets meet at Los Cucos for whatever, or, you know, just meet for dinner or lunch. Mainly it was going through and just picking which task as far as what we lost. Every day was different.
3: Mm, yeah, that... That makes sense.
1: You could say it was fluid. It was fluid. There were many meetings. Yeah. <laughs> meetings, were, meetings were a given. Somebody was having a meeting at some point at some time during the day. But no, there were, um, it, that's really what it was.
0: We talked about the push to get instructors ready to teach online. Mika was on the front lines of that transition as a reference librarian. But as the semester started up, her role changed too.
2: So we took over a lot of the chat services that we shared with the rest of the system because we knew we had to be much more virtual. And Mm -hmm. so we supported in that way as much as we could.
3: Instead of providing reference services in person, Mika set up a Google phone number so she wouldn't have to publicize her private number. It allowed faculty and students to reach her with their questions. She also found new ways to communicate with students. Mika and another instructor live-streamed a session on how to craft references on YouTube.
2: Which was a complete disaster.
0: As the semester started up, working meant doing what you could, helping whoever you could. And on September 25, 2017, classes did start, but very few on campus, if any. Three buildings survived the flooding largely unscathed. The Music Building, the Performing Arts Center, and the Student Conference Center. The Student Conference Center became the library's temporary home.
1: The full-timers were kind of dispersed many different places. I know two of us, uh, well, four of us, and Allison um, Hope Lejeune, who's one of our librarians, and I were all at SDC. Yeah, I remember yeah. so many things happened in the whole course of Harvey. Things were moving and shaking and transforming as needed, as, you know, the need fit. Do you see what I'm saying?
0: So everything was
1: very fluid, and oh my gosh, that word was used so often. We have to be fluid. Don't use that word. We have to be fluid. (laughs) Not use that word. You know, everything had to be fluid. (laughs) It became a really bad pun. Yeah, it was. It was a really bad
0: pun. The library space in the student conference center was small and cramped, large enough for a table with four chairs. That's it. Allison occupied the space and loaned out a limited number of reserve materials so that students and faculty would have something tangible something real they could hold and study from. All through this period of transition and dispersion, the students were looking for anything they could latch on to and hang their lives from. Many of them suffered flooding and dislocation. Many had stories like Taylor's from Facebook, stories that didn't resolve easily, if they ever resolved at all. It was during this time that Mika and Jennifer started to see a group of students frequenting the student conference center.
2: They were so lost. The poor years... It was a huge struggle for
1: them. Um, we had a group of gaming students that were downstairs. They would meet in a building that was flooded. So after Harvey, they had to set up a new area. And when I'm talking about set up, I'm talking about with monitors. I mean, their whole gaming yeah. systems. They would set them up in the SEC building downstairs, and they would meet there every single day. And they'd be there for Hours. hours. And they pack up and take their their TVs, their monitors, and, and their gaming systems, and they would go wherever it was that they were to go. But every day, every day when there were hardly any students on campus during that fall that fall semester right after Harvey, they were there every day for hours. <laughs> so I mean, that just showed that they needed they needed something normal. So, so that was something that they did normally. They needed to continue that normality. Yeah.
0: During the first week of classes, Allison got a sort of Frankenstein ID machine. The camera and flashbulbs came from the Kingwood machine that had been in the Drown library. The big boxy part that prints the ID came from another campus. Nobody really wanted to touch the camera and the flashbulbs at first. They knew they had been through the flood. Black water had sat for a week beneath that camera. It had been in the same room as that sewage-laced water, while the temperature in Houston crept into the 90s and above.
3: And besides, there wasn't any room in the temporary library to set up a background screen and the lights for photographing IDs, so they talked with the bookstore manager. The bookstore was also located in the student conference center, and she cleared out one of her storefront windows so Anne and Allison could set up there. That storefront window isn't like a big department store window. Think more of like a tiny mall store window where you might see one or two mannequins modeling sweaters or something. Ann and Allison set up the ID machine on a little wooden table, no more than two feet wide. They powered on the camera and the printer, and when they fired up the flashbulbs for the first time, they exploded in a burst of light and glass.
1: We had to, um, we didn't have uh, the backdrop screen, so uh, we created one using the project board. Uh, that people use, um, and we pulled up a chair that had been out in the corridor for them to sit on. It, it was quite a sight to see our made-up studio, I guess you could say.
3: Similarly, they advertised their ID services using a whiteboard easel that they placed outside the bookstore. Anne mentioned that passing students would stop and kind of gawk at Allison and the part-timer in the window with their project board backdrop and their ID machine. In a way, it helped spread word about where people could get their IDs. Also, during that first week, Allison put together an email that went out to everyone who had books checked out during the flood. She let them know that the library was extending their due dates and waiving their fines. So there was progress. It wasn't comfortable, it wasn't ideal, and in every situation, the quarters were cramped. But they were starting up the semester, they were offering services. They were moving forward. Part 3 Subterranean Homesick
0: Elsewhere, in the fitness center or FTC, the campus was making a different sort of progress. As the remediation contractor decontaminated items, they brought them back items from the health sciences building and from classroom buildings, from everywhere that flooded. From the library, Mika described seeing pictures of the contractor's air-drying books in an attempt to salvage them. They packed books into boxes and carried them into the FTC. Part of Jennifer's job was to sift through those boxes. But the fitness center had not escaped totally unscathed. The carpet was ruined, so the remediation contractor pulled it up. Gray concrete was hard underfoot. White-painted cinder-block walls cheered not a soul. Jennifer and the library director Anthony wound their way through the building to what looked like a massive storage closet. A grid of aluminum crisscrossed the ceiling where the contractor had removed the drop tiles. Exposed electrical wires wove to and from fixtures. Fluorescent lights glared down out of gray and shadow. A folding table stood outside the room. A few markers littered its surface along with a box of latex gloves and face masks. Jennifer pulled a mask over her nose and mouth and snugged it into place before entering. Cardboard boxes lined the walls two layers deep. Each one contained dozens of books. Jennifer and Anthony carried a box from the room, laid it on the table, and pulled book after book from it looking for any they could salvage. The Federal Emergency Management Agency, FEMA, required them to salvage anything they could, but the books had sweltered in sewage water for days How could they loan them to students and faculty in good conscience when they wouldn't touch them without protective gear? They couldn't, but they had to account for each one they rejected. Jennifer and Anthony spent hours, days, weeks examining books and turning them away.
3: Throughout the FTC, there were spaces labeled for the various buildings that had drowned. Library, classroom building A, classroom building B, and then underneath it, a pile of stuff. Boxes of random office supplies, pencils and pens and notebooks, as things were recovered, they found their way to the gym. Employees wandered through, sifting, hoping their stuff survived.
0: Mika told us about a political science professor who lost 30 years of memorabilia and political research. He was not alone. Whole careers disappeared into the flood waters, an item here and there surfacing in the gymnasium.
1: They set it up in the gym. Um, in our gymnasium which was damaged um, but it was um, not it was we were able to go into that building beforehand and they had set up a, um, a retrieval station so at certain times certain people could come you know a group of certain people could come and retrieve their stuff and it was really great to see people pick up their items. There were boxes that just had a bunch <laughs> of wrapping paper with moldy post yeah, I, it was it was a crazy yeah. it was a it was a crazy time. Yeah. Um, that was just a really emotional time. Was the retrieval of items? You don't know what you keep in your office. I mean, really take a look around at what you have in your office, and you don't realize everything that is you that is in your office until it's all gone. And for that, that has changed me forever. In my office right now, even though it's brand new and we sit up higher, I do not keep. It, I will not keep anything personal in here. Won't do it. No pictures.
0: And the people who worked in the library lost as much as anyone else. One librarian had loaned a doll collection to the library. Dolls that represented cultures and places all over the world. They were in a glass case, but she didn't get even one of them back.
2: So that was a huge emotional time because people lost a lot of stuff. Um, The library was one of the fit places where none of us got anything back. And I'm, I'm choking up about
0: that. <laughs> Jennifer lost everything in her office.
1: For me personally, well, it was, it was pictures. I mean, personal pictures. I know that I had a dean before, she, um, before we got our new director. She retired, and when she retired, she left some um, original prints on my desk of my favorite artist. And so I had put those on the wall. I lost all of those. I mean, I don't know. It was just, it was just my stuff. It was my stuff. <laughs> I had, I had a Time magazine that was, that I have a degree in science criminal justice and I had a Time magazine that was, I guess, a limited edition. I don't know. My mother bought it for me with all um, serial killers. And so that was sitting on, you know, one of my tables that I bought with my personal money. It, it's just, it's just the heartstrings that are connected to it. It hurts.
0: Mika fared a little better.
2: So so I got all my um my travel photos that I had hanging up on the wall and they were all framed. I wasn't expecting it and they were just like IKEA frames or whatnot, but it it people enjoyed looking at them. The thing that still today pulls at my heartstrings was um mm-hmm. yeah. Um my friends gave me glass-blown balls in the shape of trees inside, and it represented family and friendship and all sorts of stuff. I had them hanging from my ceiling. and I loved those.
0: Jennifer's prints, her table, her serial killer magazine, Mika's glass balls, none of them surfaced from the floodwaters.
3: Despite the loss, there were students and faculty to help. There were a thousand other tasks. And proximity can breed closeness, as can shared stress. Jennifer and Anthony spent hours in the FTC. Mika and another librarian, Hope, shared a space in the Lone Star College Kingwood Satellite Center, MCID. They had a little table together. Anne and Allison were off on adventures at University Park. While the library staff was spread out, They were also together in pairs and threes, doing things they never thought they'd be doing. I know when I get the opportunity to spend a little unexpected time with a colleague, whether it's during the long wind-down at a holiday party or just chatting in the break room, those are the moments that connect us. And the Kingwood crew, they were connecting.
0: As we've said, the library contained almost 40,000 items, mostly books, And Anne had devised a process for prepping their records for the LTS batch withdrawal scheduled for December 2017.
3: All throughout October, Anne and Allison and the other part-time circulation workers followed the procedure for every one of the missing books. To give you a sense of what that process was like for the circulation team, I'm going to walk you through what it took to prep one record for batch removal. If you're one of those weak need over details people, feel free to skip ahead a minute or two. But if you're kind of a details nerd like me, get ready to dive in. So here's the process to remove one record. Step one, open the item record in the catalog. Step two, check for fines. Does the
0: item have a fine? Wait, 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 wait. Are you really going to walk us through every step of this process?
3: Yes, Bill. Yes, I am.
0: Why in the hell would you do that?
3: Because, Bill, it's important. Part of what I started to glimpse as I reported this part of the story was the rigor the circulation team had to bring to their tasks, despite the immensity of the job and the tedium of each part of it. I think once people see exactly what goes into clearing the fines and holds from a single book, it'll help listeners appreciate what Anne and Allison and their team accomplish. Really? Yes, I do. But like I said, if we've got some weak-kneed listeners out there, eh, they can skip ahead a minute or two. No hard feelings. So the circulation assistant would check for fines. Does the item have a fine? Yes or no? If no, proceed to check for holds. If the item does have a fine, verify that it's a fine from the Kingwood campus. If not, don't remove the fine and proceed to check for holds. If it is a fine from the Kingwood campus, proceed to the steps necessary to remove a fine. To remove a fine, first, navigate out of the catalog and find the student's master record. Remove the fine there, then go back to the catalog and remove the fine from the book's record. Note that this is different from the student record where you just remove the fine so, that's a total of two places where the fine needs to be removed. Repeat this process for each fine associated with a given book until every Kingwood student's record is clear and all of the fines have been removed from the book. Remember that algebra book Anne mentioned? 56 patrons who never paid their fines. To continue. Once all of the fines have been removed from the book, you need to make sure there aren't any holds on it. If there aren't any holds, then it's ready to be taken out of the catalog. If there is a hold on the book, then you need to determine whether the hold is a Kingwood hold or a hold from some other campus. If the hold is from another campus, then you need to make sure the book is at some other campus and wasn't destroyed in the flood. The book is not ready to remove from the catalog. If the book was actually destroyed in the flood and it has no fines, or you've cleared them, you may now remove the hold. If the book is clear of fines, or you have removed them and it is clear of holds or you've cleared them, then the record is ready for batch removal.
0: Whew. Wow. Okay. That is kind of cool. Thank you. So
3: that's what goes into preparing one item for batch removal from the catalog. Now imagine that you are Anne or Allison and you are facing down tens of thousands of items that need to be prepped for removal.
2: It was very, very tedious and we worked very, very diligently to do this. But guess what we had? We had
3: time.
0: (laughs) You know, Mark, I'm starting to enjoy your nerdy little interludes.
3: Thank you, Bill. Nerd itch scratched. Great. Oh, but before we wrap this episode up, I wanted to take a second to mention that on October 25th, 2017, Dr. Person, the campus president, requested Anne keep track of all the, quote, lost Harvey books and non-print due to Harvey. Today, that number stands at 35,201 items.
0: On November 14th, Dr. Person stopped by Anne's workstation in the Student Conference Center. And by workstation, I mean, Anne had a plastic folding TV dinner tray she set up by a power outlet where she could plug in her laptop. Dr. Person asked Anne how she was doing, and Anne told her that she had had her last PET scan for the cancer yesterday, and that it had come back negative. Here's Anne's entry for that day. I told her I was cancer-free, and now completely focused on work. I explained that the circulation assistants and I were busy working on the back end, cleaning up the records for the Harvey items. She seemed impressed by the immensity of the project. I explained to her that the project was divided among the circulation team by call numbers and collections, and that we are working on this project in between creating online library barcodes, IDs, and working night shifts and Saturdays at Atascacita. I think she has a better idea now of what library circulation is doing while the library building is closed. Jennifer and Mika also had a task very much like Anne and Allison's record-clearing job. Mika and Jennifer inventoried everything that wasn't a book that had been lost in the library. You see, FEMA...
3: Whose job most people misunderstand, but (laughs) I can see by the way you're looking at me, Bill. I've already used up my nerd token for today, so go look it up. Thank Odin for Wikipedia!
0: Okay, so... FEMA requires what's called a content inventory list. That's a not particularly fancy name for a list of all the stuff that was lost. All the post-its, the paper trays, the fish tanks and tables and computers, everything in the library that was destroyed, swept away, or otherwise rendered unusable by the flood.
1: So um, every, every department and division across the campus, we would have to come up with a content inventory list that is everything on campus that we had before Harvey that we lost everything. So if we had fifteen chairs, we would have to go look at what a comparable item was to those fifteen computer chairs, get the get the item, get the cost, and where it was located. So when you're talking about six buildings across the campus, you know, the library was a huge, you know, huge building. Um, I had to go through, Mika also helped me. We went through and we thought of every item that was in the library from a, um, from artwork on the wall to a globe, you know, a a stand globe to chairs, to desks, to storage, you know, cabinets, everything, and then go through, find a comparable or find that exact, um, item and then how much it would be worth.
0: Jennifer and Mika were responsible for creating that list. They spent a marathon meeting brainstorming as much as they could, and then Jennifer kept adding to the list day after day. Departments compiled lists like these all over campus, and as Mika watched them deal with their losses, as she talked to faculty who were navigating the process, an idea started to form in her mind. The library crew knew that the classroom spaces were the administration's top priority, and that the library was low on the list of to-dos. But seeing the opportunity that DeLay gave them to plan, that was Mika's insight. Who knew how long it would be until the library would be updated again? By mid-February, or the beginning of March at the latest, the idea of what she would ultimately call the vision book began to take shape in Mika's mind. The old library had housed a lot of books that students seldom took off the shelves. There weren't enough plugs to power all the devices students brought in. The carpet was shabby. But what if they dreamed a little bigger than the new carpet and more power outlets? What if they developed a plan not just to rebuild the library, but to reimagine it as something new?
3: Next time on Patron Driven, episode 4 vision tours.
1: So the vision book was actually the brainchild of Mika, which I think was like the greatest thing ever. She uh-huh. came to us and she was like, let's start, let's put a vision book together that way when we go before the architects, because we knew that the other divisions and they were um, seeing the architects at that point, she said, let's do it. So that way we're ready. And we we're like, that is a fantastic idea. And that's when we started going to the different locations, um, the different campuses, college campuses, both university and, and um, community colleges across the you know,
3: Houston. Patron Driven is a choice podcast. Choice is a publishing unit of the association of college and research libraries, a division of the American library association. Huge thanks to Allison Huffy and McGittigan, Jennifer Martinez and Mika Mitchell, without whom we would not have known about or been able to produce this series. And a shout out to the Lone Star college system and the Kingwood campus in particular. I wrote this episode Sabrina Koffer and Bill Mickey provided invaluable developmental edits, and Sabrina Koffer provided audio engineering assistance. I produced and engineered the episode.